Amazon is expanding yet again in the Nashville area. Warren Buffett is jumping into the modular construction arena. And single-family homes are starting to see some prop tech. All that and more on this week's Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. My name is Tyler Cobble. I am your host. And let's go ahead and dive on in to the Nashville market. So Amazon.com snags second distribution building uh, next to the Nashville Super Speedway. This is from the Business Journals. So Amazon um, has signed a lease for yet another distribution facility in Greater Nashville. Now, if you know anything about Nashville, you know that it is well positioned for distribution and logistics, which is why Amazon has been uh, so bullish um, on this market. Because if you think about it, I mean, look, Nashville and a day's driving reach, whatever, 80% of the, the nation's population. So that's uh, very uh, strategic for them. They are leasing this building at Speedway Industrial Park um, from Panatoni Development Company, which is a very large industrial developer. Uh, let's see. Employees will sort packages before they're routed to a delivery station uh, and will employ more than 500 full and part-time workers. Uh, just goes further into how Amazon continues to expand. It's the second building they're leasing from Panatoni at this specific industrial park alone. Uh, the new lease is for 257,000 square feet. Um, next to a 600,000 square foot facility that they leased just last year. Uh, and again, I said this is yet another expansion for Amazon. It is the 14th facility that they have in the region, uh, which is just remarkable. Again, shows you how important of a logistics and distribution hub the city of Nashville, or Middle Tennessee rather, uh, really is. Um, they've got 1.1 million square feet going on in Clarksville, which we, we talked about uh, a month or so ago. Um, and they have nearly 10 million square feet of industrial space in this region alone. Uh, last week, we actually talked about their, their signing a lease officially for a second tower in downtown Midtown Nashville. Um, so they are, they're very committed uh, to, to, to Tennessee, that's for sure. Let's see. Anything else on this one? Panatoni's building the park on land purchased from the Super Speedway's owner, Dover Motorsports, Inc. Uh, and they more than doubled the footprint of the park uh, by buying about 350 acres uh, from the Speedway. Looks like, uh, I mean, look, industrial in Nashville is in very high demand. If you're developing industrial uh, whatsoever, it's likely going to be leased by the time that you deliver it. It's just kind of the nature of industrial in Nashville right now. So it's, uh, it's funny, in the last you know, four or five years, it's really gone from being this relatively, oh, how would you say it? Uh, I guess relatively unsexy part of real estate to now it's like one of the most in-demand sectors of real estate. Jennifer is saying, good evening, Tyler and Andy. Good evening, Jennifer, how's it going? Nice to see you, Jennifer. <laughs> Andy's Tyler, giving wanted... the peace sign. Yeah, go for yeah. it. I want to jump in here for for those of you trying to understand national market, I mean, this is one of the, you know, follow the money where Amazon's putting their money. When initially, the reason why we got the quote unquote operations center for excellence, Nashville was on track and one of the finalists to be the new headquarters, one of the new headquarters for Amazon. And what they ended up doing was they selected New York and Virginia, but because of politics in New York, it actually ended up being that they, that headquarters was blocked. So although Nashville's 
Operation Center for Excellence was kind of a consolation prize. It really ended up being the second headquarters in everything but the name because that one in New York was blocked. So that's why Amazon is spending all this time here, all this money, all this investment, not only because of the geographic locations, Tyler said, of being able to travel to so many places from Nashville, which is very important for a logistics and distribution company, which is essentially what Amazon is, but also because of our diverse workforce. We have a lot of talent here, have a lot of universities, have a lot of access to natural resources. Still, housing is relatively, and cost of living is relatively affordable to comparable to a lot of other markets, not to say that it's cheap by any means. Nashville is into the median or slightly above median now. It did not used to be the case, but now we are definitely within that ballpark. But still, compared to a New York, compared to a California, still much cheaper compared to the location. So that's all the big bullish signs for Nashville and why Amazon continues to expand here. Yeah, I mean, and Amazon's likely to continue that expansion. I mean, these jobs that they're moving to this, you know, operation center of excellence, I mean, I think the average salary is 150000 a year. So you think about the quality of worker that they're bringing to Nashville. It's not just distribution facilities. I mean, they are also bringing their upper level, uh, you know, more logistics type of employees to the city, which is which is really interesting to see. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, Nashville's done a great job at attracting large uh, corporations like that recently. We've had Oracle make an announcement. You know, we had Alliance Bernstein, Ernst & Young. They've all had some some relatively large job jobs announcements in the last three years alone. This next article is from the Nashville Post. Details emerge for condo tower planned for Green Hills. GBT's Eden House, so GBT is a local de- developer here in Nashville. Eden House derives 16 floors near Virtus on Hillsborough Pike, uh, or near Hillsborough Pike. So the Virtus, if you're not familiar with Green Hills, is the largest tower currently in Green Hills uh, by a lot. <laughs> um, it is, it is 16 floors. I think originally they had proposed over 20, and they ended up having to negotiate with the neighborhood to bring it back down. In my opinion, it just makes sense for Green Hills, which is about 15 minutes south of downtown Nashville. It's a nice area. has the, the nicest shopping mall um, in Middle Tennessee. It, to me, it just makes sense to continue getting density in Green Hills. The traffic's not going anywhere because you can't expand the roads at all. So you might as well have people live, work, and play in the area instead of having to commute um, through the, through the neighborhood, right? So let's take a look at this 16 story mixed use building. Um, it will rise at 2025 Richard Jones road, which is almost right next door to the Virtus. So it's, it's going to be hard for them to say, well, no, so you can't do 16 stories here. They paid $4 million for the site in mid 2019. Uh, and they are doing for sale condominiums, uh, starting in 2022, um, interesting. Late 2023 finish is odd. GBT will not be asking for any variances or rezoning. Uh, they will just be utilizing the existing entitlements. That's great. So they didn't even have to worry about the neighborhood because the neighborhood was, I mean, when Virtus was going up, neighborhood was very against that, which I just thought was so silly because they, so, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like they, they were saying, oh, well, it's going to create a lot of traffic. What most, uh, you know, what your average person doesn't understand is that increased density actually helps relieve traffic. Um, and it just leads to a better neighborhood. I mean, once the Virtus was developed, I mean, how cool was Green? You know, it was just, it brought several cool concepts to Green Hills. You've got some restaurants that 
probably couldn't have been there otherwise. Eden House will offer 111 four-purchase units, um, 1,300-square-foot ground-level retail space, and a 7,500-square-foot restaurant space. That's a giant restaurant space. Uh, that's surprising to me that they would be taking that approach. I mean, obviously, they're going for some sort of flagship-style restaurant. I mean, in a post-COVID world, I would not be doing a restaurant that large, but, you know, it's, it's Green Hills. They'll find some national uh, restaurant corporation to take it. They're also going to feature a 260-space parking garage, and it will rise just under 200 feet into the air. The building's exterior will be primarily brick, wood, and glass. I love that. You know, one thing that I've been uh, really annoyed with in Nashville is all of the glass towers that have been going up around the city. It's like they're so unarchi- they're they're unappealing architecturally. There's just no, there's nothing going on there. So to hear that they're going to be using brick, wood, and glass uh, is pretty cool. Let's see, Eden is derived from one of the original streets in Green Hills, while House references the former Nashville Fire Station building that once sat on the site. That's pretty cool. I mean, there aren't a lot of opportunities to own new construction luxury condos in Green Hills. There just haven't been a whole lot of those developed, especially at this scale. Uh, So that's, that's pretty exciting to see. Looks like, uh, so Southern Land Company was the one that developed uh, the Virtus, which is 017 Fours, okay, uh, which opened in 2018. Uh, why, why does it say 17 Four mixed use? And then, then it says 18-story <laughs> tower. Um, might need to <laughs> double-check that. It's it's between 16 and 18 Fours. Um, so uh, there we go. It just talks a little bit more about GBT, uh, which is, again, a local Brentwood developer. This next article is coming from the Business Journal's Houston REIT buys Franklin Apartments in its $89 million Greater Nashville debut. Look, the pandemic drove a lot of REITs to look into uh, just, I mean, everybody started looking at alternative assets, right, to invest in. And multifamily has been a big one. And that has uh, brought a lot of eyes to Nashville because obviously we've had a lot of growth, which means a lot of multifamily development, which means there are some big apartments to sell. So this one is, let's see, 328 units. Uh, it sold for $89.1 million. That's pretty crazy. Let's see here. Uh, equal to $271,000 per unit, which honestly is a steal. I mean, what, why does that seem like a good deal to me? I guess it depends on what the rents are. But, I mean, $270,000 a door doesn't sound like too bad, which is kind of wild to say. Because uh, I remember a few years ago when there was a record set at like $280,000 a door. It looks like the complex is less than a mile away from one of the town's business center hubs. With the sheer amount of people moving to greater Nashville, the multifamily living sector means a relatively safe bet for developers and investors alike. So pretty much what we were just saying, right? There's so many people moving to Nashville that it's, it's inevitable that multifamily is going to, one, be developed, but two, stay relatively strong. I mean, there was, you know, reports of over 80 people a day moving to Nashville. So... Uh, Franklin is one of the nation's most affluent areas, uh, according to the U.S. Census Bureau data. Um, that's pretty interesting. I mean, I, I obviously would have guessed it. It's a nice area, but I didn't know it would be one of the most affluent in the nation. Uh, the deal follows another high-priced buy in the suburb. In May, a, an L.A. firm paid $100 million for 468 units in Cool Springs. Wow. $56 million more than the complex sold for eight years ago. 
you know what? That's not a bad. Uh, that's not a bad hold if you bought it eight years ago and <laughs> and increased it yeah. to, by fifty six million. Make a quick fifty million, no deal, yeah, right? Whatever. And one it's of the fine. reasons I pulled this article out, Tyler, was to highlight the growing institutional level investment into Nashville, the institutional level demand. It's these publicly traded REITs where they said that LA firm, this Texas firm, these are the guys who are coming in and buying up the buildings, the properties, the apartments, whatever it is, outside investors want them. And that historically has not been the case. And you can see, you know, even just someone growing up here, 10 years ago to now, I can see the different apartment buildings that have been rebranded and have been bought by new developers that were previously just the same for probably decades, because that's just part of the natural cycle of growth for a city like Nashville, where we're legitimately becoming an institutional level destination to place capital, which really just should give anybody comfort if they're looking to invest in Nashville this is another great reason that, you know, it's not going anywhere. If the big guys with their big money are coming in, then you can probably feel safe with your money, too. Or yeah, I mean, I, uh, I was having a conversation with, uh, with an investor out of New York, and they were saying that, you know, it's, it's kind of weird to still call Nashville a secondary market. The only reason they, they still do that is because, obviously, they're in New York City. So compared to New York City, it's definitely secondary. But, you know, they were like, man, it's, it's basically a primary market now. I mean, you look at the, the demographics, the, the metrics, the trends of the city, um, it's, it's really getting up there in, in terms of, of becoming more of a primary market. All right, let's move on to Market Watch. So this week, we are going to be talking about San Antonio. So this is, again, of course, um, let me pull up San Antonio first. This is from the uh, Urban Land Institute's Emerging Trends in Real Estate. This is what we use every week um, to bring you guys our favorite markets to watch. So San Antonio is ranked number 12 in overall real estate prospects, just behind Atlanta, uh, yet ahead of Denver. They are number six in terms of home building prospects. So San Antonio is obviously uh, in Texas, which is a tax, uh, a state income tax-free state. Um, there is no uh, state income tax, uh, just like Tennessee, just like Florida, um, which, you know, that's driving a lot of interest into that market, uh, especially post-COVID. And it's also, San Antonio is one of the biggest military cities, if not the biggest military city in the world. So that brings a lot of stability. It is part of the Super Sun Belt, along with Atlanta, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Phoenix, Tampa, St. Petersburg. Um, let's see here. It's uh, some of the advantages of the city include the low cost of living, high quality of life, and opportunity for business growth. You know, the River Walk down in San Antonio is really cool. I mean, they've got all these bars, restaurants. It's it's a really neat uh, part of the world. That just goes further into the local market perspective. They are a three point four two out of five, which is pretty strong, uh, considering they're uh, you know out of almost eighty. Uh, cities give or take that they have on this list it's in the uh, you know the top top half um all right let's move on to this uh this article from million acres uh, 2021 san antonio real estate market investing forecast so a little bit of background on san antonio it was a spanish outpost in the early 1700s 
Uh, you probably know it from the Alamo, um, of course. Uh, so this it talks about the Alamo, the Riverwalk, countless other notable sites and buildings making it, as well as nearby New Braunfels, a hot spot for tourism and travel. It is pretty cool. I, I went and saw the Alamo, and it's a, that's a pretty remarkable landmark. Um, just to think of you know what all those soldiers were doing there, <laughs> fighting fighting the Mexican army. Uh, but like the Alamo is is surprisingly tiny. Like it is really small, and I know they they tore part of it down, but um, it is still very small. Two and a half pe- two and a half million people call San Antonio metro area home, as do major companies like Valero Energy, Rackspace, and more. Uh, the grocery chain HEB, which if you've not ever been to an HEB, it's one of the best grocery stores in the country, uh, has its roots in San Antonio and employs more than 20,000 people in the area. That's that's a lot of people. I think that's bigger than any single employer in Nashville. Or it might be, It's got to be close. Uh, Vander, I think Vanderbilt would be the only one that comes close to that. Uh, Often dubbed the military city, the town also has a strong military presence and claims multiple Air Force, Army, and Department of Defense bases. Um, Wow. Joint Base San Antonio, which is three military bases, employs 80,000 people alone. That's pretty wild. Okay, let's talk about the state of the market. So main trends uh, that they are seeing here on Million Acres are demand is weakening. That's interesting. Things are looking better in the supply department, and rentals are in a good place. So, of course, if demand is winking, supply is going to be, uh, you know, a lot, a lot easier to navigate. So let's uh, let's unpack that. Let's say let's see. Foundation's just not there for strong demand near term. Consumer sentiment is down over twenty percent since last year. Unemployment is at six point six percent, and the city's still down nearly forty thousand jobs in just the past twelve months. When you throw in ever-rising rents and home prices, which have jumped 13%, the market gets even more challenging. Now, they're saying here the silver lining is that San Antonio is still growing in terms of its population. Um, they actually picked up about 6,700 households um, since 2020, um, or you know, since 2019, I guess, technically. Um, I mean, you know, those metrics don't scare me about a city like this because it has such a strong military presence. San Antonio will always be a relatively strong city. Now, it may never take off like in Nashville or in Austin or Raleigh, Durham or Denver, but that military base of employment, you've always got, I mean, like like the, the joint base said, 80,000 people employed. I mean, think about that. That's a lot of people that are coming in and out, uh, spending money in the market. Things are looking better in the supply department. So let's see, there's a new inventory in the, coming uh, in, the, in the next few months. Builder sentiment is incredibly strong. Architectural billings, which is how they track a lot of the commercial side of things. Um, and single-family permits have seen a significant bump since last year. Rental vacancies are also nearing all-time lows, which is a big plus for rental property investors. That's interesting. So they have a 1.7-month supply of homes. Again, a healthy supply is in the four- to six-month range. So while a 1.7-month supply may be more than Nashville, which has, I think, a 0.6 or 0.7-month, that's still very low. Like, that is still a very aggressive market. Um, cost of construction has hit record highs. Builders face serious headwinds. I mean, it, it's, it's tough to build homes right now, but they're still being built in San Antonio, apparently. The city is also still quite affordable. San Antonio is easily the most affordable of Texas's major cities. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Despite its rising rents and home prices, it takes only a fraction of the local income to afford a home or rental. Um, Just 21% of local income to afford a home in the city. 
That's great, actually. They're just down 0.02% since last year. Um, you know, typically they want to say if you're renting a house, you want to make three times whatever your rental rate is. So the fact that uh, you can afford a home for five times your income, I mean, that's, well, five times your monthly mortgage payment. It's pretty good. Let's see here. All right, we covered the rest of it. Let's go on to this next article from investmentrealty.com. San Antonio real estate market proves promising for investors. So in the past, San Antonio may have been in the shadows of other major Texas cities like Austin, Houston, and Dallas, but that is apparently beginning to change. The city has had a resurgence of investment in its business district downtown, uh, partly due to the expansion of the University of Texas at San Antonio, uh, their downtown campus, as well as other commercial developments and renovations revitalizing the area. Let's see. So UTSA, that's University of Texas, San Antonio. They created a 10-year vision for the downtown campus and have uh, been working to raise $500 million for the project. They've gotten some fairly substantial donations, including $15 million from Graham Weston, $20 million from Carlos Alvarez. Wow. Um, they also received a gift from the city and the county to help expand its uh, campus onto additional land. So that's great. I mean, the city, everybody's very into uh, UTSA continuing to expand. They are opening a $90 million facility in 2022, uh, which is for the high-tech leaders. Interesting. Um, looks like it's for the, the School of Data Science and National Security Collaboration Center. I mean, that is that screams more military jobs if I've ever if I've ever heard that. Uh, UTSA's objective is to connect the west side neighborhoods to downtown area, creating welcoming spaces while expanding the campus. I mean, expanding campuses always create a, or they tend to create very desirable areas to live because they become walkable. Since there's so many students, so much activity on site, you think of football games, sporting events, whatever, you know, a lot of cool restaurants and bars want to be near there, which makes all the neighborhoods surrounding it highly desirable. I mean, you look at the the Belmont uh, area, you look at West End near where Vanderbilt is in Nashville. I mean, those are some of the best parts of town to live in if you want to live more urban uh, because they're just highly walkable. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of stuff worth walking to. Let's see, economic development goals for San Antonio. Uh, the Development Foundation shared a plan to add 140,000 jobs to the city and generate $55 billion in economic impact by 2025. That is an aggressive goal, and that's awesome to see. Uh, they've already added 250,000 jobs since 2010, so probably not a, a very unrealistic at all, actually. They have the uh, largest Hispanic population in the country, and they've seen a growth of 9% in population from 2015 to 2020 with a 9.5% job growth in that same period, uh, which outpaced the U.S. average of 6.2%. That's pretty strong. Now for some of their real estate statistics. Uh, let's see. It's one of the more diverse and stable markets in the country, uh, featuring tourism, national defense, and healthcare uh, as the main industries. I mean, those are great industries to have as an anchor if you're going to be a city, right? I mean, tourism, Nash Nashville um, obviously benefits from that. National defense, I mean, that's ne that's never going anywhere. Healthcare, that's never going anywhere. So those are really good, uh, you know, core industries to have. Let's see. Vacancy rate is up 11.1% uh, for commercial real estate. 
It was at 9.3% this time last year. So it seems they're starting to see some of the fallout from uh, COVID. Now, let's put that in perspective. Nashville's historic vacancy rate is around 10% over the last 20 years. So that's still not bad. Uh, number of properties under construction is also up at 2.2 million square feet, give or take. And the city was at 1.9 million square feet during the first quarter of 2020. So they are they're building more. Gross rent in all classes averages uh, $23.60 a foot full service, uh, which is up from $23.23 during the first quarter of 2020. Uh, but it is down from the fourth quarter of 2020 when the rate was $23.63. So, I mean, look, that, I, I wouldn't even consider that a, a fluctuation. I mean, you're off by $0.03, cents, right? I mean, that's that's not that big of a deal. Cool. So there you have it for San Antonio. Definitely a market to keep an eye on. Like I said, Texas is a uh, no state income state. And that is that along with Tennessee and Florida have been the three mar- the well, the three states that most of our national investors have been most interested in. Uh, every time we get calls about triple net investments, or, you know, placing capital into developments or something like that. Those three states are always the first that get asked about. All right, let's move on to the future of commercial real estate. So uh, this is from Globestreet.com. The drones are coming. Warehouses need to get ready. I mean, look, automation and AI has been very prevalent in commercial real estate uh, over the past year or so. Um, I mean, obviously, it's been going on for a lot longer than that, but it seems like everybody has really started talking about it as if it is now an official part of commercial real estate, which is really exciting to see because... If you listen to me talk ever, you hear me complain about how commercial real estate has been stuck in the 1980s since the 1980s. So uh, good, good to see that, that is, uh, that's coming. So while warehouses have gone through a little change over the years, very little, uh, the buildings will need to accommodate drones in just a few years if technical and regulatory progress continues at its current pace. We have started to see warehouses, I mean, they're building taller and taller ceilings. And obviously, that is, has in large part been because vertically, it's a lot cheaper for you to stack all of your product. Also, and maybe this is a completely unintended consequence, it's going to be a lot easier to fly drones through a taller facility and not worry about hitting uh, forklifts or employees or whatever. I mean, it just makes a lot of sense. But you think about how that's going to change the industrial warehousing industry, right? I mean, just in the last few years, we've seen most product that's you know 18 to 21 feet or shorter is becoming relatively obsolete. Most tenants want taller ceilings. They want to be able to stack you know a third rack or a fourth rack, whatever that ends up being for whatever they're stacking. Um, they don't really want these shorter ones. So we you know I think most of what I'm seeing built now is 28 feet or taller. Let's see. They will need to incorporate charging points, roof hatches, or skylights, uh, or more space outside for drone landing pads to be drone ready. In addition, warehouse operators will need to rethink design, picking, and packing operations and shipping methods. So it looks like uh, you know the drones are going to be based on uh, or, or intended for delivery, as well as maybe um, some interior um, moving around or sorting. I mean, think about it. If you've got stuff stacked 30 feet up in the air, it'd be great to just have a drone that flies up there and scans it and takes care of it. I mean, that's just straight out of the matrix, honestly. It's just wild to think about. 
Uh, drones in Europe are taking longer trips to more remote locations. Royal Mail has an uncrewed aerial vehicle carrying up to 100 kilograms of mail to an airport in the UK. After that, a smaller drone takes deliveries to dedicated points. It's really cool to see that they're already testing this out. Drone technology also continues to advance with a new model coming from Wingcopter, capable of delivering three parcels in one go. That's cool, too. Uh, despite the progress, obvious obstacles remain. Financial feasibility is still a long-term issue with concerns about replacing the drones over time. I mean, that is a big problem, right? I mean, these technology is becoming obsolete in almost like 6 to 12 months. So how are they going to be able to keep up with whatever new advancements there are? Uh, in addition to the hardware, the software, there are also regulatory hurdles. I mean, are the governments, is the FDA really going to want a bunch of drones just flying around? There's going to be a whole lot of regulation that's going to have to go into that. Let's see. Wow. Kroger is running its own pilot drone schemes to deliver groceries in as little as 15 minutes. Yeah, that'd be so cool. You just get on the, the Kroger app and in 15 minutes you've got dinner, like dinner delivered to you, like just ready to go. I mean, you like warm up the oven and by the time the food gets here, you're ready to go. That's cool. Uh, drone deliveries, as they become more common, the global market will grow from $528 million in 2020 to $39 billion in 2030, according to research firm Markets and Markets. That's a significant jump in the demand for drones. So, Andy, maybe we should go buy a drone company. Uh, while drones I'm ready will for be, it, Tyler. Yeah, let's do it. Tyler's um, already a drone expert. If you guys don't know, <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that, but I do love my drone. We use it all the time. Uh, I mean, the footage that you can get from those things is crazy. We so we were actually uh, this is obviously an aside, but uh, it's my show. I can do whatever I want. So last year we had a client that was buying an apartment complex. And the, uh, because I have my drone, we were able to fly the roof and take a look at it. The client was a little bit concerned about that considering the condition of the property overall, the roof was actually in fine condition and we were able to make an offer on site there. And we beat out another group for it, uh, because of that. So yeah, there's one little advantage of having a drone that drone paid for itself. Uh, let's see. Naop said last fall that drones and autonomous vehicles will likely contribute to more efficient and responsive supply chains and greater demand, uh, greater productivity for industrial assets. Of course it will. I mean, think about how efficient everything will be when we just have drones flying instead of 18 wheelers uh, or trains or whatever that are having to ship all of these materials. You just load everything up on a drone. You let it go. I mean, there's no roads. Doesn't have to stop for gas. It just takes it. That's pretty cool. All right, moving on. This is another article from Globe Street. Here's what those labor shortages mean for CRE investors. I have not run into a single person that has not been complaining about labor shortages here lately. Anybody that has a workforce, right? I mean, obviously, you get into professional services companies, and that's a little bit different. But, I mean, it, so I've got buddies that own hotels, buddies that own restaurants, and they are having such a hard time dealing with the, these labor shortages, and it looks like that could have direct and indirect implications for commercial real estate. So let's see. May job creation numbers were once again below expectations, clocking in at about 560,000 jobs with an estimated 8 million job openings. That's crazy. 8 million job openings across the U.S. And 9.3 million unemployed workers. So 
that's such a weird just number to look at. We have 8 million job openings and 9.3 million people that are actively seeking jobs but are not taking any of those 8 million jobs. You know, politics aside, I think that some things are going to have to change with minimum wage and a few other things because people just don't want to take those jobs. They don't want them. But I don't know. Maybe there will be a reckoning, too, and people will realize, like, oh, I'm just going to have to take something. I'm going to have to do I mean, something. I mean, there's a reason, money. Tyler. There's a reason, Tyler, like all the companies already, regardless of the national minimum wage, are raising their company minimum wage. Amazon's at 15. Most grocery stores are at 12 or 13. Uh, Bank of America announced that its tellers, even just its maintenance people and tellers, are going to be making 25 bucks an hour. Uh at Bank of America, you know, Chipotle said our average wage is going to be 15. McDonald's said starting wage is 13. So if McDonald's is paying 13 and you're out there trying to pay, you know, 725 in a state like Tennessee, you're not going to be able to hire somebody. It's just the market has spoken at this point. Yeah, and I see a hard time. I just don't see how you could really argue against it, honestly. Like when you when you adjust for inflation and you look at, you know, McDonald's ha- pays normal wages like above, well above American wages in Europe, and they the the pricing when you adjust for uh, currency isn't really that different. So, I mean, it's 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 just corporations not wanting to pay people. Now, uh, I saw something yesterday where somebody um, they had taken a grocery wage back in the 1980s. You could work at a grocery store for $4 an hour and inflation adjusted, that's $33 an hour today. That's wild to think about. Tyler, I'm quitting. I'm going to go work for a grocery store. <laughs> you going to go work for a grocery store in 1980? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, go invent time time travel. That's brilliant. I'm going to invent time travel just so I can go back and work at, at a grocery store. I mean, that's wild, though. Think about that. $4 an hour in 1980s is $33 today. I mean, they, they're making 8 bucks starting, probably. I mean, to just put stuff on shelves. Like, you got to raise it. <laughs> I don't know. Um, anyway, that's that's a complete different aside. We didn't even need to go off on that tangent. Um, the employment gap can be partially explained by the expanded federal unemployment benefits program. Of course, there have been a lot of complaints about that. Um, but I mean, look, it's, it's genuinely helping people that need it too. Okay. Uh, program includes 300, that says 300, oh, $300 in federal benefits. I thought it was supposed to say $300 million. It's like $300 in federal benefits, uh, per week <laughs> per person on top of any state benefits to which the recipient may be entitled. That may not sound like much, but for many, it's more than sufficient, particularly in cases of families with children where being at home instead of working means reduced childcare costs. That's crazy to think about too, because that basically becomes a uh, what's the, what's it called? the minimum liv- livable wage or whatever it is, or the universal wage. UBI, I mean, if, yeah, UBI. I mean, look, if if three hundred dollars a week is all it takes for some of these people to get by and live, and they would rather have that instead of a job, I mean, I think that there's a couple government programs that we can divert money from to get to kind of cover that. Um, 25 states have opted to end participation in the federal unemployment program early, with some ending in June and others seizing participation in July. So we'll start to see some significant changes in that unemployment rate over the next three months, I bet, I would think. Because um, once those employ- once those benefits end, there's no, there's no choice. you got to go back to work. 
The challenging hiring climate has direct and indirect implications for commercial real estate. Uh, difficulty in adding staff and upward pressure on wages is forcing some hotels to operate at partial capacity. Had a meeting with a hotel hotelier uh, this morning. One of his buddies who owns another hotel here in town had to block off 50 rooms this weekend because they could not find uh, the cleaning staff to turn those rooms, right? Like they had the demand, uh, but they just, they could not turn them over. So it's crazy to see how that actually, I mean, that actually is a direct impact on commercial real estate because now if these hotels can't afford, I mean, those are 50 rooms that you really need to have on the market to make money to pay to be in that real estate, right? So that's, that's pretty concerning. Um, even if they can fill all of their rooms, some are at limited capacity at 70% because they don't have the staff to clean them all. Some restaurants are closing one or two days per week because they can't hire enough cooks and wait staff. We've seen that problem too. I mean, there's a, a new restaurant that opened up in my neighborhood, I guess I won't say, but uh, they can't serve their full menu yet because they can't find enough cooks to actually do that. Crazy. Senior housing facilities are also feeling the pinch as they raise staff compensation to fill positions they have to raise rents to cover the costs. Yeah, I mean, and senior living facilities are already expensive. A shortage of truckers is slowing down the delivery of goods to retailers, causing shortages and inflationary pressures. Construction worker, I, Andy, I don't like this article. It's just so doom and gloom. <laughs> it's just, there's, uh, this is a lot of fun reading this to you guys. I'm really enjoying this. Uh, Bank of America raised its minimum wage company-wide to $20 an hour. Uh, Amazon plans to fill 75,000 positions in its warehouses with jobs that start at $17 per hour. Quick service restaurants like McDonald's and Chipotle are also following suit, uh, like Andy was saying. I mean, if you want to compete right now, raise, raise your wage. You'll also get better quality, right? I mean, that's I've always strived to pay my team more than they could go get anywhere else. Now, there are some exceptions, right? Like if, if we're if we're one of my companies is a startup, right? So we're having to pay startup wages, totally different. But when you pay your employees a wage that they could not get anywhere else, and you treat them better than they could be treated anywhere else, you'll have less turnover, which means you have to worry about this less, which means your team will function better, right? I mean, it just makes you a better company. Um, it's just interesting to me to see giant companies that have that pay a lot of people that are way smarter than I am to help them with this stuff still struggle with it. Wage inflation tends to be sticky. Wages tend to go up, but compensation tends not to go down. That's a good thing. Uh, this could, in conjunction with other rising costs, drive inflation rates high enough to force the Federal Reserve's hand, forcing them to tap the brakes on dovish policies that are holding interest rates down. So even if interest rates rise, cap rates are unlikely to increase thanks to a record level of capital in the market. That's actually that's a really cool thing to read. I like that one. Um, I don't want interest rates to rise, but the fact that cap there rates won't change, great. Yeah, there we go. There's the there's end. a nice little. I was gonna say there's a nice little cherry on top to um, to to relieve a little bit of the doom and gloom. So, I mean, Andy, what are your thoughts on this? I know we chat, chatted about it a little bit a second ago, but I mean. How do you think this is going to impact the commercial real estate market? You know, this is one of one of the philosophies that we've been trying to share with you guys for a long time is that the future of real estate and being able to make money in real estate really is going to rely more and more on your operations. It's obviously true for hotels, right? It's obviously true for hotels because the 
value of the real estate in the hotel is directly related to how well you operate the building as a hotel. But apartments and offices and retail traditionally hasn't been thought of in the same way with you know the globalization of of assets and having more money chasing more deals and with things like this labor shortage and things coming into play of how do i treat my employees it's like literally where it's all of a sudden the maintenance staff and the property management staff that you hire that's all of a sudden becomes way more important. It's not just a it commodity. Yeah, it's not just it's not just people who are machines pushing buttons anymore. I mean, because not that they ever were, but in the past, you know, capital has been able to treat them as such. And and now it it really you can't afford to do that anymore. And you're probably gonna get rewarded if you do treat people the right way. And so if you have a better property management staff, you're probably gonna be able to squeeze out better returns, right? Everyone, the first thing in any company people like to cut is labor because it costs the most money. But maybe the reorientation is going to be towards, okay, let's keep our labor up, but have that paired with the fact that our workers are happy and not trying to leave the door and then have them be more efficient. And that's where the future of owning companies, the future of operating these real estate buildings is going. And the more efficient you are able to be, that's where you really get the rewards rather than trying to pinch pennies here and there. It's to have the most efficient operation of your building possible. And I think that's where we're going. Yeah, absolutely. Jennifer's cracking me up over here. She, this was ba- based on what I was saying about commercial real estate being stuck in the 80s. Were you even alive in the 80s, Tyler or Andy? No, neither of us were alive in the 80s. I've heard it was a wild time. <laughs> Um, okay, moving on. This article is from BizNow. It's going. By the way, if y'all have any questions to everybody watching right now, if you have any questions about commercial real estate, anything that we're talking about, commercial real estate in general, or you just want to ask me and Andy funny questions, you're welcome to drop them in the live chat. We will definitely answer them. Uh, it's going to be a good summer for downtown multifamily landlords as a full recovery comes into view. So when the pandemic first hit, everybody started talking about suburban multifamily. Everybody wants to get out of the middle of the city. They don't want to be around people anymore. You know, houses in suburbia are going to sell for more. And, well, I mean, of course, maybe that was true for a little bit. Come on. Most most people do not, I mean, not most, most millennials, maybe most Gen Zers don't want to really move out and live in the suburbs yet. Maybe they'll do that when they start having families, but all of the excitement, all of the energy, all of the best food and beverage concepts are all in downtown cores. So, of course, as the market starts to recover and everybody starts to move back out of their parents' houses, it's going to be to the downtown core. The downtown apartment market came roaring back this spring in the rush of new renters to developer Michael Mocheri's downtown apartment building put his firm in an unexpected position. Instead of spending this year scrambling to stabilize its new Parkline Chicago Tower, the building began filling up so fast that they sought to slow down the pace of new leases. Can you imagine how great that of a feeling that is? If you're a developer, you're like, man, this project is too successful. We've got to slow down how much we're selling or leasing. Uh, that's great. Um, let's see. They started offering the Parkline's 190 apartments earlier this year, and the first couple months were slow. But springtime flooded it with renters, and uh, they now want to avoid having too many leases expire at the same time next year. That's a big concern when you are an apartment developer. You want to make sure that your leases are staggered 
so you don't have to worry every the, at the same time every year. Oh my gosh, we're gonna have like fifty turnovers this month. You don't ever want that because it'll it could hurt your cash flow. You want to spread those out every month. Uh, we don't want thirty leases a week, Macherry said. That's not healthy for a building of this size. It's not. Yeah, you do want to keep that down. Uh, let's see. They slowed leasing activity by raising rental rates and cutting down concessions. Other downtown apartment developers did so as well, and Macherry said rental rates and concessions are nearly back to pre-pandemic levels, something he would have found unimaginable just a few months ago. With downtown restaurants, bars, parks, and stores attracting bigger crowds, the picture grows brighter each week. And complete recovery is now in sight. I mean, again, it is, it's the people want to be where there is electricity. It's just... And not like actual electricity. I just mean energy. Uh, wherever stuff is happening, uh, it's just excitement. Let's see. There was uh, an exodus from the CBD because there was nothing to do, right? I mean, you moved out to suburbia because you couldn't even go down to the restaurants and bars. I was in Chicago a few weeks ago, and I was amazed to see it, how much was still shut down in that city. Now, I'm coming from Nashville, which has basically been back open since December. Uh, but back in May, I mean – we were walking down the street and half the restaurants were still closed. We had very, very few options. Uh, and a lot of stuff was permanently closed, which is just weird to see because we haven't seen a lot of that in Nashville. Um, let's see. Lindley's was in the middle of leasing up the Cooper uh, when the pandemic hit, a 29-story tower in its South Bank development in Chicago. It had hit about 80% occupancy, and company officials expected it to reach full occupancy by June of 2020. Instead, they watched it fall to 69% um, as residents moved out. Look at that. See, including young people who returned to their parents' homes. I mean, a lot of people did that. They were like, you know what? I'm getting out of this lease. I don't know if I'm going to have a job next month. I'm going to go move back in with my parents. And that's kind of tough. I mean, yeah, of course, you really want to move back out of it, right? Because nobody really wants to live with their parents. But when you're not paying any rent, or I mean, you probably aren't, right? Because you're living with your parents. It's tough to go back and commit to $800, $1,500 a month, right? Or $2,000, $3,000, whatever that ends up being. It's a significant jump. You kind of get used to having the cash. Let's see. We are fully stabilized at that building, and it just happened in three months. That was the, That's you know talking about Lynn Lease's uh, building there. Uh, the downtown market has already recorded a strong Q1, leasing twenty-seven, nearly 2,700 apartments, which is the most they've ever had for a single quarter in Chicago. That pushed resident uh, occupancy up from 86% to 91%. That's remarkable. That's a lot of apartments to get signed in just one quarter. 2,700. Um, wow. Let's see. Is there anything else we need to dive into for this article? I mean, this that pretty much covers it. I mean, look, if you want to talk higher level here, downtown core product is going to do very well and a lot of the i think that this this you know what this actually is a is a good point the assumptions that everybody made or that most people made going into the pandemic were completely wrong right i mean a lot of people were saying things because they were under duress they were under stress and they were saying oh office space is dead oh everybody's going to move out into the suburb because no one wants to live next to each other anymore there were so many statements like that, that that were grasped onto, and then everybody wrote an article on on that, and it became the talking point of of every commercial real estate conversation. And that's proving to not be true. I mean, everything that we've that we've been tracking is rapidly getting back 
to pre-pandemic levels because the market itself is still very strong. We just had this weird anomaly event that nobody could have expected. And so, of course, as soon as things start going back to normal, everything's going back to normal, right? People are moving back, uh, back to where they want to be. So Yeah, Tyler, exactly what you said. It's almost like people are saying, oh, no one wants to live in cities anymore. Cities are dead. Well, it's almost like if the reason for why cities exist, which is being with other people and the connectivity and all of that is gone, then people are not going to want to be there. It's like no one wants to be downtown when all the restaurants are closed and all the cool, fun things to do and you can't hang out with anybody. Yeah, yeah. of course. But yeah. it's coming back. And I mean, with the you see the demand in hospitality, in restaurants, in everything right now so strong. Everybody has, is so desperate to get back out. And I honestly think that is not just a quote-unquote pent-up demand thing. It's obviously going to taper off a little bit over time. But it's going to be one of those things that people realize how much they value that human connection and interconnectedness and being able to do activities. I think it's going to kind of be a searing imprint. I, at least I know it, you know, speaking for people my age, people are going to be uh, Gen Z people are and who are going to be the apartment renters of the future are so desperate for human connection. This has been such a fundamental impact on their lives as we're all pretty young that we are going to be seeking that out for the, the rest of time. You know, yeah. that's just one of those things that is imprinted in your brain. We're always going to extra value being close to other people. So it's it's something one of those things is yeah i think probably in the future we're going to have a little bit more safety things where we have better sanitation better ventilation and all that kind of stuff those are going to be things that people care about rightfully so and i think that's a great thing but it doesn't mean that the apartments downtown are going to die and all the trends that we've been seeing for the past 10 years are going to die i think they're going to continue just as strong yeah, I mean, look at all of these other black swan events that completely shaped a generation. You know, the, the generation that came out of the Depression, I mean, they were chronic savers and hoarders, right? Like, they held on to everything. They, they reutilized everything. They never spent any of their money. And then you look at the boomers. I mean, World War II and growing up in a, in a post-World War II American boom completely shaped how they viewed the world. And so I, I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think COVID will have an impact on how – the Gen Z generation ends up socializing and how they interact with each other moving forward. It, it very well could. That's a, that's a very interesting point. All right, let's move on to private equity deal dive. So this is from Globestreet.com. Report, Blackstone acquiring QTS for $6.7 billion. That's a very small number. Um, transaction is valued at $10 billion, including the REIT's existing debt. So uh, Blackstone is taking data center REIT QTS private in an approximate $6.7 billion deal. Uh, let's see here. Blackstone Infrastructure Partners and BREIT have agreed to pay $78 a share for QTS, according to the Wall Street Journal, which says the companies plan to announce the deal today. Uh, the price is a 21% premium to QTS's closing share price on Friday and a 24% premium to the volume-weighted average over the last 90 days. So typically, you know, we, we've been talking about, obviously, REIT acquisitions over the past couple of months. 
because there's so much capital sitting on the sideline. Everybody was so ready to go out and buy a whole bunch of, of what they thought was going to be distressed real estate. And that has not happened, right? Because either either the real estate performed well, tenants were able to continue paying rents, or the government stepped in and helped with some of those payments, or even banks gave deferral payments, right? So nothing ever hit the market in a distressed sale situation, and all this capital is sitting there ready for it. So they still have to deploy that capital. What are they doing? They're going up and buying other REITs in order to acquire more real estate. So that's why this is happening. Data centers are among the commercial real estate asset classes that the private equity giant has targeted. Blackstone has been partnering with Corporate Office Properties Trust to invest in data center shell properties. Um, we've talked about data centers before in REITs. I mean, data centers are, are actually performing very well for very obvious reasons. We are moving more and more into a digital world, right? I don't see that slowing down anytime soon. You think about the processing power that your phone has now and how much data and download speed that takes. Well, all of these websites have to have, you know, servers and whatever in data. I mean, look, I'm not the most intelligent person when it comes to exactly what data centers do, but I know that that is how our internet and all of this stuff operates, right? And so those are continuing to grow. They continue to grow. So that's a very strong real estate uh, play is having data centers in your portfolio. So it just makes sense. D data centers are kind of like uh, storage facilities, right? I mean, you get renters uh, and you don't really have to go in and deal with them. Right? I mean, that's why storage facilities are so attractive compared to multifamily. All right, moving on. This one is from BizNow. Harrison Street buyer, uh, Harrison Street, buying senior housing portfolio for $1.2 billion, selling medical office buildings for $371 million. That's interesting. Trading uh, senior housing for medical office buildings. MOBs have been very popular over the past year because medical is a very stable commercial tenant uh, or commercial industry, right? I mean, medical is not going anywhere. You know, hospitals are always going to be hospitals. People are always going to need to be taken care of. So they've done very well um, over the past year, right? I mean, similar to data centers, right? I mean, data centers didn't just go down in popularity or demand because of the pandemic hit. I mean, people were still surfing the internet. And in fact, there was probably an increased demand because everybody was buying online. So let's see. Harrison Street Real Estate Capital is set to acquire a portfolio of 24 senior housing communities for about $1.2 billion as it sells a medical office building portfolio of about half that size. Well, I'd say about a third. Let's see. The senior living properties are mostly in California and Nevada, uh, and they're operated by Oakmont Senior Living. Uh, looks like there are about 2,200 units that are mostly assisted living and memory care. Um, so that's you know, basically later stages, the more intensive stages of senior living. Um, let's see here. They average four years old with occupancy stabilized at 96%. Senior housing sector remained resilient through the pandemic and is poised for growth. Let's see, specifically, the assets we are acquiring are managed by a leading operator in Oakmont and located at attractive markets backed by solid demographics. I mean, California is not a bad place to retire, right? I mean, and, and the interesting thing about senior living is it honestly can be successful in just about any market because people want to retire uh, near where they used to live. Right. It's just it's what they're familiar with. 
So they actually get very location specific. They want to go find neighborhoods that have a higher population of boomers and then build senior living like right next to it. Chicago-based Harrison Street in December raised $720 million for a new fund that will focus at least partly on senior housing. That fund could raise up to $2 billion. So there you have it. I mean, look, senior senior housing is a very stable um, asset to be investing in right now. I think that it's going to continue to grow for the foreseeable future. And the interesting thing is, too, I mean, you know, look, once the people were talking about senior housing, well, what happens once, you know, we've moved past the boomers, right? Because they're obviously the biggest generation. You know, once we don't have any boomers anymore, will, they'll, will there still be a demand for senior and assisted living? I think that these types of products are, you know, they're developed in a way that they could be converted for something else if demand ever significantly drops off. I mean, they're typically located in in, in good areas, um, and they also, I mean, they're already built out as smaller dormitory style living. So I could see that becoming more of an affordable housing um, offering, which would be interesting. All right, let's get into prop tech. My favorite. Um, as I was saying earlier, I mean, prop tech is such an interesting so- sector of commercial real estate, and uh, I wish that people were talking about it a little bit more. So uh, I guess we're going to talk about it. Money pouring into climate prop tech as real estate is pushed towards sustainability. This is from BizNow. Um, climate prop tech is massive. One, because there's actually money in solving that issue, but also because socially, that's what people want. And when you are able to say that your building is greener or it, it helps, uh, you know, just relieve the strain on the earth, I mean, people are more likely to lease or buy from you. I mean, we've found that. Andy and his team have been doing a significant amount of research on green construction and alternative construction methods because people want it and they're willing to pay price premiums for it. Venture capital firms this year have begun raising hundreds of millions of dollars that they plan to deploy into prop tech startups aimed at taking on climate change by making buildings more sustainable. One thing to note, too, if you you are in tech, you get traded on a different multiple, and you are also able to bring a lot of value to a lot of these developers. So, you know, that's why there's so much money moving into it. The surge of investment taking, uh, taking place across the U.S., Canada, and Europe comes as experts see multiple coinciding forces that will push developers and landlords to adopt green building technologies in the coming years. Let's see. Joe Biden is pushing, President Joe Biden is pushing to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on sustainable buildings, uh, which will uh, hopefully force rapid adoption of climate prop tech solutions. Let's see. But the movement isn't just coming from from the government. Shareholders, lenders, and tenants have been escalating pressure on landlords to make their buildings become more climate-friendly. That's going to continue to happen as tenants demand it, right? Shareholders and lenders are going to push developers towards whatever the tenants are demanding. If tenants are demanding something green, then lenders are going to be more comfortable giving money to a developer that's going to go do a green project. So it's another cutting edge or advantage that you can have as a developer, an investor, whatever, if you can go crack that code, because you're likely, I mean, we've been talking about over the past couple of months, Andy, all of these REITs and hedge funds that have giant buckets set aside just for green and sustainable projects. So, I mean, think about that. 
right now there's not a whole lot of developers or investors or, or buildings that are really in that category. You have a good opportunity to go raise some capital there. Let's see, if we're going to hit any of the dates out there like 2030 or 2050 to be carbon neutral, you need to be investing between $2 trillion and $5 trillion every year in retrofitting buildings with climate tech. This might be the largest venture capital opportunity in history. That's coming from Greg Smithies, who leads Fifth Wall Ventures, which is a, a firm. Uh, I mean, that's a big firm. That's, I mean, that's saying a lot, right? For somebody that's in that position to be saying that this could be the largest venture capital opportunity in history. Now, of course, maybe they're marketing, right, and promoting their fund and trying to get that out there. But that's still a very big, bold statement, right? Over the last two months, at least three new PropTech-focused venture capital funds have launched with plans to raise hundreds of millions of dollars to deploy into the sector. Fifth Wall, which is the largest PropTech-focused VC firm, launched a $200 million climate tech fund in February, and last month it received its first investment from Ivanhoe, Cambridge. Um, also in February, London-based venture firm 2150 launched a fund focused on sustainable building startups for which it expects to raise 200 million euros, or roughly $237 million, uh, to invest across the world. So it's not just a local type of... Uh, fund or venture for these guys. I mean, they're looking to do it across, across the world and you have to, right? I mean, it's, if it's, if you're going to impact the climate, it's a global issue. It's not just the United States. There's a billionaire investor called Chamath Paliapatiya. He has argued that climate focused investing and climate focused companies are going to create the world's first trillionaires essentially because Look, I mean, if you solve, uh, you know, our environment not exploding and therefore allowing humans to keep living in a happy, nice environment, yeah. you probably deserve to get a lot of money. <laughs> that is not That's a wrong. lot of value. That is a lot of value. Um, let's see here. These new funds focusing specifically on green prop tech companies are part of a multi-billion dollar trend. So they, they kind of just continue going into that. Let's skip ahead. Okay, why funds are raising this money now? Climate tech startups have been proliferating for several years, but a confluence of events over the last year has led investors to foresee an acceleration of the real estate industry adopting these technologies. So Andy had mentioned earlier about you know HVAC scrubbers and higher quality HVAC. That's one of the things that has come of COVID, right? Uh, these events range from government action, including local regulation and federal spending, to market-based drivers, such as capital sources and tenants demanding more sustainable buildings. So again, it's going to come down to the tenants really leading the charge here, um, which, is, which is pretty exciting. Let's see what else. Making existing buildings more efficient is a priority with billions attached to it. That's a great quote right there. So, yeah, that's pretty much it. It goes into a few other, um, basically, they're going into case studies and VC firms that are doing this and, and you know, examples of developers that have that have done it. And so if you want to read further into that, article, it's obviously a very long article. We're not going to cover it all <laughs> right now. That is in the description below. Okay, moving on. This is in the Wall Street Journal. Warren Buffett to offer a new spin on modular construction. I am all in on modular construction. I think that prefab and modular will solve 
one of the biggest issues, if not the biggest issue that commercial real estate faces, and that's obviously very apparent today, which is construction, right? I mean, you've got the timeline. I mean, right now it's taking forever to do anything. You've got the cost. Labor is unbelievably expensive. Materials are unbelievably expensive. And how do you control all of that? Well, you start manufacturing in a factory, right? Like, can you imagine if, you know, we were just making, we would go find a piece of land and just start making cars on it, like just every now and then. And then you go find another piece of land and you just make a car on it. That doesn't make any sense. It's not sustainable. I mean, look at what, you know, Ford did by creating the factory line. I mean, that makes so much sense. Why are we not building these homes in a factory? You can get, I encourage you, if you are interested in modular construction at all, to go into the YouTube rabbit hole uh, that is prefab and modular construction. It is fascinating to watch these videos and see them build these houses in less than 24 hours on an assembly line. It's really, really neat. So a startup owned by Berkshire Hathaway aims to make construction industry more like car manufacturing. Please do. Um, MyTech Inc., a Missouri-based construction technology company, is launching a new modular building venture with New York City-based architect Danny Forster in architecture. The company plans to build entire rooms for hotels and apartment buildings and factories, then send them to a construction site to be stacked on top of each other. Why is it taking so long for everybody to figure out that that's probably the fastest way to actually build something? I mean, look, it, it doesn't matter if you have rainy weather, if you have sunny weather, like all you do is you just go out and you drop it on site, right? You're assembling these things in shelter. It's air conditioned. The working conditions are way better. You could do it way faster. Why not? MyTech has more than 6,000 employees and sells building components, construction software, and services such as engineering. The company said it is investing tens of millions of dollars into the modular venture and plans to start working on its first projects early next year. Modular construction isn't new, but companies have struggled to be profitable. That is the biggest thing, transportation, right? Transporting entire rooms to construction sites can be expensive, and some finished buildings have suffered leaky facades. Now, if you can crack that code, uh, most developers are probably willing to pay for that cost, because it saves them on overall development timeline, which means that they are not paying as much in interest carry uh, or, or even whatever they owe their investors, right? Because, I mean, think about it. If you're a developer and it takes you 18 months to build a project, you have 18 months of equity carry. You have 18 months of interest carry. You have 18 months of paying your employees to work on this site, right? Because you're not just a developer. You're going to have a project manager. You're going to have you know, your asset managers, whoever's on your team doing this, right? So that costs you a lot of money. I would probably be willing to pay more for the actual construction if it meant cutting off six, eight, 10, 12 months off my timeline. It just makes a lot of sense. So let's see here. Uh, they are looking to move a bigger part of construction work to factories and become a one-stop shop that cuts out middlemen like plumbers and architects. They're struggling under this model. Uh, it looks like that group had to get bailed out, uh, Katera Inc. MyTech looks to modernize modular construction by requiring assembly by general contractors. Now, that's unique. Instead of building entire rooms in a factory and driving them to a construction site on a flatbed truck, MyTech wants to ship kits of manufactured building parts along with instructions. Now, the one, that's that's another thing, right? Like, we, we've seen a couple of these projects in Nashville, but the issue that everybody's always had is like, okay, well, now that we've got the units, how the hell do we put them together? 
And that's typically where it ends up going wrong is like actually assembling the project. So if you have a crew, uh, if you have a crew that actually goes with the units to go install them, or you're able to make it so simple, it's like, hey, here's here's your Legos. Like go out, you assemble here. I'd be, you know, gosh, it'd be so amazing. The general contractors would then construct the rooms from these parts, which would include a steel cage forming the structural support for the room in a warehouse or other type of industrial building near the construction site. Shipping the parts rather than entire rooms keeps transportation costs low and allows MyTech to supply the country from its factory in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. The company's vice president of modular building solutions, uh, according to Tom Todd Olam. Um, Companies continue to invest in modular construction despite the challenges, uh, which speaks to the businesses, the business model's premise. I mean, people want it. It makes sense. Like we understand that, you know, maybe there's going to be some issues with it now because we're still trying to figure it out. But it will, uh, it will be fruitful at some point. Oh, look at that. They're talking about Henry Ford, of course. I mean, that's you're talking about assembly line construction. It just makes sense to do that in, in construction. Let's see, they're going to automate much of their 225,000 square foot factory, including robotic welders, similar to automakers assembling cars. That's pretty cool. I mean, I, I love that. I, we're, we're, we are all in on modular construction. We're trying to do a couple of modular and prefab projects right now. We're having a lot of trouble cracking the code because it's, it's just not as established of an industry as it needs to be. And a lot of these guys are kind of, you know, flying by the seat of their pants and they're trying to figure it out too, uh, which, you know, is totally understandable, but it's very frustrating when you're trying to get these projects off the ground, because at the end of the day, we know that we could crank out, you know, six of these projects in the time that it would take one, if we're able to figure that out. So we are, uh, we're very excited to see where that goes. Yep. And I will put this out there for anyone who is considering real estate and considering a thing to look into and try to get involved with look we are four million single family homes short of what we need to meet demand today four million and we are going to be four and a half million apartment units short of the demand we need to hit by 2030 so that's eight to ten million and it's probably going to be more uh units that you could build and we would still only be at regular market demand there is this and what that means guys is essentially there's infinite demand because we're not going to be building 1 million units a year uh over the next you know 10 years that's just above what we're currently doing right we have to increase it another 1 million over what we're currently doing so if you can figure it out if you can work on this this is one of the just like with the green real estate and environmentally solution focused real estate Modular construction, speeding up the construction process, allowing more units to be built is the other greatest, essentially, venture and part of the real estate industry that is just ripe for disruption. Yeah, I mean, Nashville has a, a multifamily shortage of like 30,000 units in, in the next three years. That's just affordable. That's, yeah, just that's just affordable. affordable. So, I mean, Nashville alone has a 30,000 unit shortage for affordable housing. I mean, there's there's a clear solution there, and you know maybe whoever cracks that will become the first trillionaire too, right? All right, let's move on to reading REITs. So, 
Today, we're talking about single family rentals and prop tech and how that is going to significantly impact investing in single family homes. Single family homes need as much help as they can get, in my opinion. I'm not a big, big fan of single family investments. Now, clearly, just because I'm not a big fan doesn't mean they're not a good investment. Um, I've ju I just don't see the value in it, but a lot of hedge funds and REITs do. And that, to me, says something, right? So let's dive into why prop tech uh, is so big for single family homes. This is from Seeking Alpha. Uh, the positive reverberations from the post-pandemic housing boom are now being felt across U.S. rental markets as single-family housing rents are suddenly soaring at the fastest rate on record. I mean, rents are going up significantly. Obviously, that's a good thing. Uh, it's a good time to be a single-family uh, owner. Riding the rental revival, single-family rental REITs are the single best-performing property sector since the end of 2019 gaining another 25% this year following strong earnings results and recent updates. Mirroring the surge in suburban home values amid a historic, should be an historic, housing shortage, single-family residential REITs have reported double-digit rent growth in recent months, while occupancy rates continue to set record highs. I mean, see, like I said, I may not be a fan, but clearly they're doing really well. <laughs> uh, quieting the critics that question their ability to operate efficiently, SFR REITs have been leaders in using property technology, PropTech, to reduce costs, increase renter satisfaction, and fuel accretive growth. Short on supply, high on demand. While the fast-growing SFR REITs appear pricey compared to other REIT sectors, valuations remain compelling compared to other PropTech disruptors in the housing ecosystem. Pretty wild. Andy, what, uh, what, graph it, what graphs did you want to go over? Uh, we can actually look at this first one here, just cool. over the big companies uh, in the space. There's Invitation, American Homes for Rent, and Tricon. Invitation, uh, I forget who's owned by who, but like Blackstone owns one of them. And I think maybe it was KKR owns the other one. And so just the big real estate guys, they've gone really hard onto single family homes for rent. because, And the reason why, Tyler, is because... For them, it's essentially just a multifamily property with, you know, just spread out over a lot of space with more attractive debt because single family homes are just financed with better debt yeah. than multifamily is. And so that's that's the value proposition. And and the question for, for a long time has always been, can you get enough scale? Can you make it efficient? You know, if you have to send people running around, you know, the, the whole the thing against single family homes for the individual investors has always been, oh, if you even if you hire a property manager and maintenance people and you have to send them around to a bunch of homes all over the city and drive around, they're wasting time. It's not going to be efficient to run as a business. The idea here, these single family home for rent communities, they're building them with rental properties in mind. So you're building these houses you know, actually with not quote unquote rental grade finishes, but actually maybe even uh, a little bit higher and higher durability finishes to reduce your overall maintenance costs, right? You're building them so it's easy to transport and change out all the parts. Every single toilet is the same. Every single faucet is the same. So when they institutionalize it like that, it becomes very easy. If something breaks, if a shower head breaks, you know, you know exactly what to do. They have everything on a maintenance schedule to even keep ahead of it. So that's where the valve. Yeah, it's it's just essentially 
a big machine that is as good as any apartment building. But, you know, if you do it the right way and build it from the start, then you can have probably even better performing than an apartment building because you can get better appreciation because single family homes tend to appreciate more than apartments. And with this, why we've seen 25 percent growth here in, in just like one year. That's crazy. Yeah, and so one of my good friends, Bruce McNeilage, I'm going to shout him out because he's one of the bigger uh, single-family for-rent developers in the Southeast. I mean, he's based here in Nashville. He's got project, projects going on in Tennessee, Georgia, and I think South Carolina, maybe North Carolina. Not entirely sure. But, I mean, he regularly sells homes um, to these REITs. I mean, it's it's a pretty good business model, and he's nailed, I mean, he's nailed it. He's he's you know, he gets invited to go speak on it all the time. Uh, but basically, he'll go and develop entire neighborhoods, rent them out, and then he'll package that up and sell it to a REIT. So it's a really interesting business model that, you know, there's there's definitely some opportunity there. So probably uh, could be worth exploring if you're interested in that. But yeah. And the number I wanted to point out is that they own about 150,000 homes, which, you know, that sounds like a lot. And that is a lot of homes. But I believe the amount that translates into is like two or three percent of the entire housing market. Yep. So it's not like they've taken over everything, but it is a significant factor of the housing market now that you have these big guys in the space, which is a portion of the reason why real estate appreciation has been increasing so much for single family homes. But people often say, hey, these guys are the number one reason everything's no, I mean, their, their, their market share is not nearly close enough to ever, and it will no. never be close enough to, to match because you just can't build enough for the same reason that everyone's been talking about. It's hard to build stuff. It, it's hard for, to build for these guys too, the guys with all the money. It's, it's hard for them to build. So, well, And also, there's, there's just so much opportunity. So I, was, I went to Australia a few years ago, and I was blown away at how their market is. It is almost uh, the exact opposite of ours. So in America, around 70% of people own and 30% of people rent, or at least that's that's just how the real estate is broken down. In Australia, 30% of people own, 70% of people rent. So you think about that opportunity alone, I mean, there is significant room for that to shift and change uh, if the market starts to go another way. So yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously a lot of opportunity and people are preferring to rent now, right? So if you're offering them the ability to rent a nice house in a good school district, maybe they would just choose to rent, uh, continue renting as they build their family instead of staying in an apartment complex or I'm sorry, instead of going out and buying their own home, right? So there's, there's a lot of opportunity there. Let's scroll down a little bit more, Tyler, here. Uh, not this one. I, I want to look at this one. Yeah, the rent growth by market. So this kind of touches on to the points of where we've been talking about of, you know, the best places for for rent growth. And and one of the curious things here is that actually uh, the Riverside, California, we've been, you know, California has been one of the down markets for rent growth for a long time. But Riverside is a smaller little community that's taking overflow people from the bigger communities. So even within a state like California, you have certain markets in there. It's the small cities that are, you know, start or the smaller, more mid-sized cities that are 
getting the rent growth now, even within those more difficult markets like California. So you still see massive growth in places like that. And uh, the median being at 4.1% of rent growth, which is, you know, pretty, pretty strong. It is a very strong rent growth to be at 4% year over year. When we do our underwriting, typically when we're looking at our rents, rent growth increases at 2 to 3%. So for single family homes, it is, it is, you know, punching way above its weight. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's really good to see. I mean, yeah, like, like Andy said, we usually go for kind of CPI, consumer price index, which is historically around 3% a year. So to see 4.1% is that's very strong. The only other really major thing here that I wanted to pull out, Tyler, is at the at the very end. Um, well, we can briefly touch on this too of how all these different companies are using all these different property technology management systems uh, in order to make their stuff succeed. Where you have, I don't know, from the realtor side, Open Door and 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 Zillow, you know. Zillow home buying to all the different construction technology and management technology. You have the mortgage financing technology management of your smart home with Honeywell, Alexa, Google Nest. Uh, There's just a lot of different things that are being integrated now, different platforms and services that make single family homes for rent an actual institutional level investment when this probably just would not have been possible 10 years ago. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So the just the last thing is at the very end, there's like the the bullish and um, bearish perceptions of real estate. Let's see, it is. Let's see, it's a long article. Here, there we go. the bull and bear thesis of the bullish thesis is that there is not enough supply. We have the demographic tailwinds of really just the 30 to 40 year old range is going to be peaking as millennials get older and older. And that demographic is going to be growing 2% per year through 2025, which means that this, the demand for this segment is obviously going to go up to, as well as the fact that there's going to be essentially a big institutionalization of these single family homes. And that we're probably early in the cycle of growth here is at least is the argument that single family for rent growth previously lagged apartments rent growth, but has just started to reverse and is now outpacing multifamily. And they say it's likely to continue at least for a few more years. The bearish case is that home ownership is, is a low yield business because of tax incentives and subsidies for home ownership. You're competing against, you know, government money, FHA loans, where you can get things at 3%, VA Sometimes loans, where 0% can, down. Yeah, VA, VA loans, where you can pay 0% down and a low, low cap rate. So they said there's a persistent net asset value discount. You're not necessarily going to, and this is specifically for the REITs, not necessarily for the business operation itself. The business operation could be fine and could be worth, you know, let's say you have a hundred, you have a thousand homes, they're each worth a hundred grand, right? And so that's a hundred million. So that might be on paper what your business is worth, hundred million, you have a hundred million of assets, but they might not inform, as far as REITs go, reward you, they might only assign you 90 million for your net asset value. 
because the cap rates on these houses are so low. You have so much money tied up per unit that uh, it's it's typically just way more expensive to own, you know, a three hundred thousand dollar house and then get rent on that versus owning, you know, a two hundred thousand dollar apartment building unit. You just your rent spread versus the price you pay up front is a lot better. The home price appreciation is actually a negative for the REITs because if it boosts the net asset value, it will depress the gross yields, right? Your return on, you know, kind of value and equity in there as well. It's a young sector, and then we're not sure about overall scalability. It's hard to keep growing, again, because it's hard to build them. So those are kind of the bearish arguments against it. But in comparison to the bullish arguments, I mean, they're a lot weaker. They're important to keep in mind in this sector, but really, Single-family homes for rent, I don't think they're going to be going anywhere anytime soon. Yep, exactly. So I would say our opinion is uh, we're, we're bullish on single-family rates. So if you're interested in, in investing in that type of, of commercial real estate or real estate, um, go, go check them out. All right, Andy, now for the wild card. What are we going to be talking about this week on the wild card? Thank you, everybody, for sticking around to the end of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Podcast. As always, I'm coming at you live with our wild card segment here at the very end. We want to talk about, you know, something cool and different, interesting that not everybody always talks about in the real estate sector, something that you might want to consider looking into for yourself at home. And what better to be talking about today as I am coming to you from Puerto Rico is international real estate investing. It's something that people haven't really thought about much. Most people haven't thought about much, but now that, you know, people are starting to think about remote investing, remote investing in different cities across the country, that's becoming really popular right now because you can manage it with technology. Well, what's really the difference between managing a house in Nashville, Tennessee from California, managing a building in Nashville, Tennessee from New York versus managing a building in Cancun, Mexico? right? There's not a whole lot of difference logistically, but there is some difference from the monetary tax and legal structure that we wanted to pull out for you guys. I have been here in Puerto Rico and studying the real estate market here, and it's been pretty interesting seeing how it is. And who knows, we might uh, have a project here by the end of my stay, but it's, it's one of the, a cool way to think about potential diversification for your own real estate investment portfolio. And that's always something that we strive to tell people to aim towards is having a good diversified portfolio because at the end of the day, we can only like looking at REITs, right? Look at single family home for rent REITs. We might see these factors, we might understand the market, but at the end of the day, you can't predict the future. The best way to hedge against risks that we can't understand, that we can't possibly foresee is investing in different areas in different locations and one of those might be international real estate investing so obviously they say that most investors start their international real estate journey seeking a secondary home in a foreign country using the property as a personal retreat when desired and running the home as a vacation rental when they're not there right that's actually i'm considered personally buying a house here to do the same thing but they have large investment firms and real estate investment trusts they use international real estate investing as a way to take advantage of growth opportunities, real estate income opportunities, or for the tax benefits. 
again, it adds a layer of diversification against political or economic instability. Since the dawn of time, empires, kingdoms, and countries have risen and fallen. Things have stumbled at times, so it allows you to hedge against the ups and downs of various countries, markets, and economic cycles. I will say as a caveat to that, if the United States market starts to falter, then it's probably the entire globe is going to be faltering. So I'm not necessarily going to say that to bet against the United States, but it can't be a bad thing as well if you have the additional capital to be looking at other places potentially outside the US. Part of the disadvantages is obviously knowing and understanding the market. This is the biggest thing. If you don't understand what people want, you're not gonna be able to provide value to them. That is what all real estate investing is. You buy a good property in a high demand area. Why? Because people want it and you provide value to them by renting it out, right? That's what buying real estate is. You know what people want, and you provide that asset to them and you rent it out. So if you don't understand the vulnerabilities, government laws related to foreign investments, then it's going to be a little bit difficult. Sometimes you might have problems with property ownership laws and how do you report it to the IRS? So, and the last thing here, and this is a big thing, is financing. A lot of countries, and this is something interesting as well, don't offer mortgages like they do in the United States, even to their own residents. And if they do, they might be at much, much worse terms. One of the reasons for this is that the real estate markets in most countries around the world that it's not the United States are very, very underdeveloped compared to the United States real estate market. And that represents, and this is why I'm bringing this up to you guys today, both an opportunity and a disadvantage, right? If it is undeveloped, it is a time potentially you can get in and really make a difference and get outsized returns. But there's also that the advantage that there's a lot of things that people just haven't figured out in the markets, right? Real estate in the United States is just over the last 10, 15 years, some of these sectors getting institutionalized. So, and you, you, the United States is probably 30, 40 years ahead against over a lot of other countries. So that's where we are. We're in the very beginning stages of trying to figure out how capital, how real estate investing works in a lot of these other countries. So the tax uh, thing is very important to think about management. So those are very important to think about as I pulled out, but I wanted to just pull for you guys a few of the cool places to invest internationally. And you see here, it's Riviera Maya, which is part of the Cancun area, uh, Cabo, Cabo, Mexico, Panama City, Costa Rica, Portugal, Medellin, Colombia, Italy and France, more Mexico, Belize, Spain, Nicaragua, Slovenia and Poland, and Mexico. Uh, sometimes I see lists for Thailand, but kind of one of the big pullouts here. The best places to invest internationally are touristy areas are places where there's also demand outside of local industry. Because that's another thing to think about is when we decide what markets to invest in in the United States, we want places with a lot of industry. We want places with a lot of local jobs. Guess what? In a lot of countries, even in Europe, there's a lot of places that have struggles with, with creating jobs and creating uh, investment and industry within their own communities. It, it is a big problem. That's why you've been seeing, even in Europe, a lot of protests and demonstrations for wages, for all that kind of stuff over the past few years, because 
their job market is significantly worse than the United States. So as United States people, even though we were having that discussion about all those openings and the shortage and unemployment rate just a few minutes ago, we are still way better than a lot of other countries. So one of the ways to get around that is to take advantage of the fact that, you know, the tourism industry, barring another COVID black swan event, is always going to be something that is keeping places sustained. It is definitely a large reason why, you know, Puerto Rico right here is being sustained is because of tourism right now. So these are things that if you can understand where tourist dollars are going, plus there's some local industry and development, that's going to be how you make your money. So I just wanted to pull that out for Riviera Maya from Cancun to Tulum and Playa del Carmen as well. There is just a lot of natural resources. And one interesting thing is that until the late 1960s, Cancun barely existed, right? It was just a plant, coconut plantation. And through Mexican government investment, they spent a lot of money to make it a success. I remember I visited Cancun last year, right before COVID hit, and talking to the local taxi drivers, talking to the local people, they're saying, look, the entire industry here is tourism. They have built up everything overnight, essentially. And this is where, when hurricanes hit Mexico, this is where they put all their resources to rebuild first. For better or for worse, right? You know, obviously it's sad for residents of, of, of the poorer places of Mexico, but the richer areas of these countries are the places that if something gets hurt, they get all the reinvestment dollars. They get all of the resources to support them. It's the same here in San Juan. My power went out last week and literally it was a power plant that exploded. <laughs> in Puerto Rico, there was like a massive fire and then it cut off power to like 25% of the island. Well, guess what? Because we live in San Juan and the richer areas of San Juan, uh, they got their power back on first, right? So in terms of risk management, that's one of the things to understand. Where's the government of these different countries putting in money? And they said, they call it the path of progress, where an event occurs that will push land and real estate events higher, like government investment, new airports or roads, all that kind of stuff. So there, there's a plenty of other places, Cabo, Mexico, you know, Panama City, we were talking about uh, Costa Rica and tourism and the environment, all these other places. Just cool things to think about and understand. And again, if you ever want to consider diversification of your portfolio and thinking about investing in these other countries, it is definitely something that you can do now with property management technology and with being able to use all these different tech resources in order to manage overseas. So who knows, maybe it's time for you instead of buying an Airbnb in, in Aspen, maybe you buy an Airbnb in Cabo, Mexico, and you enjoy that one instead. So that's what we wanted to bring to you guys today. Tyler, I just thought it would be a cool thing to throw in front of people just to say, hey, this is another opportunity that people can be thinking about, especially as we're entering a post-COVID environment. You know, why not, right? Why not explore and expand your horizons a little bit more in real estate? If you can find the right markets that have local government support, that have industries like tourism and other things that are providing a lot of money that are going into these areas, 
it's going to be a pretty good investment provided that you can get with your accountant and your tax professional to figure out all the complicated legal stuff about it. You can get some pretty good returns, uh, especially compared to the more established markets in the United States for the risk you're taking, right? Real estate is a risk reward investing spectrum and the risk you're taking is more, but oftentimes you can get more reward. So that is just an option, an opportunity to put on the table for a lot of people. And I thought it would be cool to bring up today. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't know about you, but uh, buying an Airbnb in Cabo as opposed to Aspen sounds pretty good. Um, that is pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Um, I, yeah, I mean, look, I, it's, it's been fun having Andy down in Puerto Rico because he's, he keeps texting me like, Hey, can we do a deal? Can we do a project down here? It'd be a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, I'm all, I'm all for it, man. We get a, we get a, a, a right offable, if that's a word vacation, right? Like, come on, we'll go down there. We'll check on our real estate. We'll operate a business down there. I mean, it's obviously, you know, that's what that's for. Um, Evan's jumping in the live chat. He's asking, how's your micro unit construction going? Um, Evan, it's going great. We uh, we started pouring concrete this week, so uh, really excited to finally get that going. If you're not familiar with that project, we I bought a car wash and we are converting it uh, from six car wash bays to five micro restaurants and a bar. Uh, so it's a it's a very new concept. We're really excited about it. That's going on here in East Nashville. That is it for this week's Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, let me know if you all have any questions or you want us to talk about any specific uh, types of projects or any news that's going on out there. That is what this show is for. Let me know in the comments below. If you're listening on the podcast, don't forget to rate and review. And if you are on YouTube, please like and subscribe, and we will see you all next week.